Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. You know, we've been in Genesis chapter 12 for a few weeks now. And so far, we've covered the first nine verses in this chapter. Uh, We've seen in the first three verses that they are really monumental in its scope and impact. Uh, Here in those first three verses is the biblical covenant, a promise to do something. Uh, This is a covenant, a promise uh, that God initiated himself. And we saw six elements of the covenant, that the promise that God makes. He says to Abram, I will make you a great nation, if you look at the first three verses. He says, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you be a blessing. I will, he says, bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you, and I'll bless all the families of the earth through you. Uh, When we studied this covenant uh, from these first three verses, we learned that this is not a bilateral covenant. That is, it does not depend on both parties doing their part in order to reach the conclusion, in order to fulfill the promises. It is rather a unilateral covenant. That is, uh, there is one party that is involved uh, that takes the initiative and takes the onus on themselves. Uh, And here in this covenant, it is God to fulfill the requirements of this covenant. So it's a unilateral covenant. He makes a promise, that is, God makes a promise to keep the covenant. Now, Abram's response to this unilateral covenant we looked at last week was full obedience. God told him to leave his country, leave his relatives, his father's household, and go to the land that God will show him. And what does Abram do? He fully obeys. He obeys. In spite of opposition and objections to his faith, he not only obeys, he also offers praise and worship to Yahweh by building an altar to him at Shechem uh, near uh, the Oak of Moray, and then again by building another altar on Mount Ephraim with Bethel, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Uh, he builds another altar, but he not only builds another altar, he calls upon the name of the Lord on that altar. That is, Abraham proclaims the name of this God. He shares about the great name of this God. Now that brings us to this passage that we have in front of us today. Before this incident, remember, Abraham is in the promised land. He is in the Negev, which is the Hebrew word for south. Now, as you read this passage, perhaps you are already exposed to this story. You already know the story. And as you think about this story, perhaps you think uh, this passage is about Abraham and that the fact that he should have just stuck it out in the Negev and not gone to Egypt at all. Or you might think the passage is about the shrewd thinking of Abraham, his, his conniving actions and his deceptive plan. Or you might think this story is about how close he came to jeopardizing the plans and purposes of God. But as you read the story again and again, as you study the story, a picture emerges of the God behind this story. Uh, The picture is of a God who is fully aware of the promises that he has made and a God who fully intends on keeping those promises. 
What is the story about? If I had to summarize it, it would be this way. This, there is a picture of God portrayed in this story. Here is God who is fully aware of the promises that he has made and a God who fully intends on keeping those promises. And so I've titled our lesson for tonight, The Promise-Keeping God. The Promise-Keeping God. That is the conclusion that I'm hoping that you will draw as I have drawn from this passage. But in order to get to that conclusion, we need to understand the narrative and the nuances in the narrative itself. I'm going to read the first verse as we begin looking at the narrative, and then uh, hopefully as we come to the end of this narrative, you will agree with me that we are looking at a promise-keeping God. So turn with me to Genesis 12. We look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Uh, first of all, we consider the departure. The departure. Moses tells us that there was famine in the promised land. Uh, the topography of the land that Abram was in is completely, was one that was completely dependent on, on rain. If there was no rain, there were no crops. And if there were no crops, then there was famine. Now, in such instances, uh, families and nations would either dive into the storage uh, uh, capacities that they had, or they would send their people to, to buy food from other places. Now, it's interesting to note here, though, Abraham has just recently, in the last few months, entered the promised land, and he is immediately faced with the first challenge of his faith. There is no food. Now, Abraham had a few choices that he could choose from. He could just stay where he is and pray and hope that somehow God would provide for him. That was a choice. He also had the option of going back to where he came from, the Ur of the Chaldeans. You see, he had left a relative uh, area of relative comfort, uh, an area that was very familiar to him. He had left his people, his nation, his supplies, and followed God into the promised land. Or he could just stay where he is and somehow hope that food would fall from the sky. Now, sometimes you pray, but you still have to undertake certain actions. And so that's what Abram did. What did he do? He planned to go down to Egypt, verse 10. Now, scriptures many times talk about going down to Egypt because of the terrain that is there. You see, the promised land, Israel, as, as it exists today and existed at that time, was, was made up of lots of hills, and Egypt was on a lower plain. Now, being on the lower plain, Egyptian land, especially the land that is closer to the river Nile, was very fertile and had crops throughout the year. Egyptian historians actually record that many of the Middle Eastern parts of the world, uh, foreigners would frequently come to Egypt for grain when there was drought or, or famine. Now, how should we understand Abraham's decision then to go to Egypt? Some commentators actually have come down very heavily on Abraham, saying that this was his biggest mistake. He should not have gone down to Egypt. Now, while we can make a case for that, but we also need to think of the fact that Abraham may have been thinking that as the leader of the family, what can he do to preserve the family? And so his decision to move to Egypt may very well have been a very practical one. That's, that's where the food was. 
you know, sometimes in the scriptures, Egypt is associated with the world. In fact, there are passages uh, that, that I read in Isaiah which talk about the fact that that represents wor the world. But if you look at the scriptures later on in Genesis itself, God himself encouraged Jacob to go down to Egypt. You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis 46, there was a famine and uh, there were some activities that took place before Jacob actually moves to Egypt. But God appears to Jacob and uh, verse, 40, 40, verse 2 and 3 of chapter 46, uh, it says, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. And so God himself encouraged Jacob to go down to Egypt when there was famine. And so that is not the picture that we have here in, in terms of what Egypt is, which is, it's not the picture of the world in this instance, in this uh, little narrative that we have here. Abraham would rather do something to preserve his family than just sit and not do anything. The story is told of a drowning man, a fellow who was stuck on his rooftop in a flood. He was praying to God for help. And soon he saw a rowboat, uh, a man in a rowboat actually came by and a fellow from that boat shouted to the man on the roof, jump in, I can save you. The standard fellow shouted back, no, it's, it's okay, I'm praying to God and he is going to save me. And so the rowboat went on. Uh, up came the motorboat, same back and forth. Then came the helicopter, the same discussion. And soon the water rose above the rooftop and the man ended up drowning. Now we, we can't authenticate the rest of this story, but I'll go ahead and, and share it with you. Apparently he went to heaven he finally got a chance to discuss his whole situation with God, at which point he exclaimed, God, I had faith in you that you would save me through this, uh, th through this flood, but you let me drown. Can you help me understand why? Uh, to this, God replied, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? And so sometimes we do pray, and we do have to take actions based on that prayer as we trust God. Abraham did not want to be the drowning man. And so this was a shrewd move on Abraham's part. Abraham did what he thought right to preserve his family. The text says, verse 10, he went down to Egypt to sojourn. Uh, that word there uh, is someone who goes to another land to dwell temporarily, uh, to dwell as an alien. And so the plan on Abraham's part was not to dwell permanently in Egypt. It was to come back to the promised land at some point of time. He had full intention of coming back to the promised land, but he was forced out by the famine. And just in case we don't, do not, did not fully grasp the severity of the famine in the land in the first sentence, or the first phrase, Moses repeats it for us again and says, the famine was severe in the land. Firstly then, we see a departure from the promised land. This sets the scene for what is to follow in the rest of the narrative. And so secondly, that brings us to the deception, the deception, verse 11 to verse 16. We'll begin by reading verse 11 to verse 13. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, see now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. 
please say that you are my sister so that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. Abraham concocts a, a plan. Now, as we study this section, Moses gives us some insight into Abraham and his mindset and his thinking pattern. He's fully aware of certain things as he goes about uh, moving forward to go to Egypt. He's fully aware, for example, how his wife looks and what it means in a foreign culture. The text says that Abraham said to Sarai, his wife, listen, I, I know that you are a beautiful woman. Now, in today's lingo, it would be, I'm fully aware that you are drop-dead gorgeous. You didn't know I knew that word, did you? <laughs> it's like Abraham is saying, you're, you're a walking piece of art. Uh, you're not just good-looking, you're stunningly beautiful. Now, for those, those of us who are getting older, we, have, we still have hope. You can be 65 and still be beautiful. So he shows an awareness of how his wife looks like. He also shows an awareness of some of the customs and cultural aspects of the Egyptian culture of that time. He knows that if the local Egyptians were to see her, they will want her for themselves. And if they would want her for themselves, they'll quickly discover that she is already married to someone, and so they will want to get rid of him. If they were married to me, he says, it would not be a big deal for them to take me out. It would not be such a big deal for them to kill me. They will let you live. So here's my plan, Sarai, to get around this. Tell them that you are my sister so that they will not kill me because of you, and then I can live. Now, what are some things that we can draw from, from this plan? Uh, both here and in the previous decision to depart, notice verse 10 and verse 11 to 13, there is no seeking involvement from God. Uh, there is no bringing this matter to the Lord in prayer. It is as if God has been shunned from the decision-making process. And by not involving God, Abraham shows a lack of faith. Lack of faith in God and lack of faith in his abilities. How does Abraham show a lack of faith in God's abilities? By failing to trust God's ability to provide. He did not believe Jehovah Jireh the God who provides. He will learn that lesson, as many of you who already read the rest of the book know. What Abraham seeks Sarai to tell the Egyptians also, secondly, is half-truth. Because if it, is, it is true that Abraham was Sarai's brother. They both had the same father but different mothers, Genesis 20, 12. But a half-truth is actually a full lie. Sarah was actually his wife. That is their current, current relationship status. Before they were married, the statement that they were siblings would have been a valid one. But once they are married, that status changed. You know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest figure in biblical history, Abraham, is completely stripped off and at the core is shown to be a man just like one of us. A sinful man. Clearly, in Concocting this deceptive plan, Abraham has violated the ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. In other words, thou shalt not lie. Now, by telling half a truth, Abraham intended on deceiving the Egyptians. But not only did he misrepresent and lie, he also failed to be a selfless man. He failed to regard others as more important than himself. Isn't that what Paul says to his letter to the Philippians? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, 
but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Abraham cared for his life more than he cared for what would happen to Sarah's life. Now, with all of that thinking and strategizing, you would think the plan would work out. How did the plan work out? Notice verse 14 to verse 16 as we look at the derailment of the plan. It came about when Abraham came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. You know, Abram's reading of the culture and of the customs of the Egyptians was accurate. When they came into Egypt, the locals, the Egyptians immediately saw that Sarai was beautiful, verse 14. She was, as I explained earlier, stunningly beautiful. She was very beautiful. She may have stood out also because of the color of her skin. She may have had a fairer skin compared to the Egyptians, and she was immediately noticed. And here's where the plan begins to derail. While Abraham had expected the locals will take notice of his beautiful wife, he had not anticipated that the people who belonged to the king of the land, the Pharaoh himself, would also notice Sarai. Abraham may have thought, actually, that if the locals were interested in Sarai, then as her brother, they would have to come to him to ask her hand in marriage. And then he could spend some time whiling away, negotiating with them, hoping that the famine would get over by that time, and then he would quickly head back to Canaan. But he did not anticipate Pharaoh's officials being interested in Sarai. Now, the officials are not only interested, they see her and they sing her Praises, verse 15. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. The word there for praise is the word halal, from where we get the word hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Here the word is used to express approval and admiration of the physical beauty of Abraham's wife, Sarai. And so after some preliminary checks, perhaps making sure that she's not already married to someone, the officials then bring her to Pharaoh's house. Women were kept in such a house, and it would eventually be a few months before uh, that individual was then taken into king's presence. Remember Esther's story took almost 12 months to get her from once they had acquired her to be presented uh, to the king. It took almost 12 months, and so uh, it would have taken a long time for her to actually eventually be presented to King Pharaoh or Pharaoh, and so she was just taken in to begin this, this process. But how was Abram treated on his part? Verse 16, Abram was treated very well for Sarai's sake. He not only did not die as he anticipated, so his plan did work to some extent, but being her brother, he was given what is called as the bride price or dowry in exchange for Sarai. And the price that was paid gives you an indication how much they valued Sarai. Notice what they give him. He's given sheep and oxen. Animals that are so useful in that part of the world are given to Abram. He was given donkeys, animal that was used for transportation. He was given male and female servants, a mark of someone who is rich and, and prosperous. He was also given female donkeys. Uh, this was also a prized possession 
uh, female donkeys were the most commonly used uh, modes of transportation during this time. And they could also reproduce more, so this was a great prize. Not only that, he was also, it says, given camels. Uh, camels as a mode of transportation and as an animal that was owned by people was very rare. And so camel as a gift was like gifting another person a precious stone. It's seen as a measure of value that is placed on something. And so all of this is given to Abram as a bright price. Now it's fair to say that when Abram was rewarded above and beyond that he expected. And yet the thing that had happened, although it's not directly in the text, but we see it verse 17 onwards, yet the thing that happened had not pleased the Lord. We do not see the Lord intervening when Abram decided to depart for Egypt. Notice verse 10. He allowed it. And when he sees that his plan is about to be disrupted, when he sees the iniquity has reached a certain stage, he intervenes. He knows when to intervene, and he knows how to intervene. And he decides all of this on the basis of his character and on the basis of his plans and purposes. In this particular instance, we can say he decides on the basis of the promises that he has made to Abraham. He gives a word and he keeps it. He makes a promise and he keeps it. He says to Abraham, I will bless you and I will bless others through you. Anyone who blesses you, I will bless. Anyone who curses you, I will curse. I will make a great nation out of you. That promise God delivers on as we look at verse 17 to verse 20, thirdly, considering the deliverance. The deliverance. Notice verse 17. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. We begin by considering verse 17, the Lord's intervention. Notice in verse 17, this is the only time that the Lord is mentioned in this little story. And yet, his is the most powerful presence. He comes only once on the stage, and his is the most pow powerful presence on the stage. Now, Abraham had not imagined or planned for God to intervene in this way, and neither did Pharaoh. And yet, God is working behind the scenes. You know, there are thousands of things, millions of permutations and combinations taking place in this world, even right now, for us to have met in this room. Let me give you an example. Consider the, the universe, the space. The fifth planet from the sun is the planet Jupiter. Uh, this planet acts as a cos cosmic vacuum cleaner as it protects the Earth from incoming comets. There's another planet, Mars, which is the fourth planet from the sun, and it protects the Earth from the incoming asteroids. God placed them exactly where he needed them to be placed so that the earth was habitable to us. In fact, even you coming here tonight, so many things had to work behind the scenes for you to safely reach here and be with us tonight. And yet we take many times those things for, for granted. You see, for you to be in this world, 
two people had to come together exactly at the time that God had intended them to be, coming together as a couple. For you to be doing the things that you are doing, so many things need to come together. All of those things, we know that God is one who sustains and he, through his power, continues to make sure that things are happening that we are not even aware of. And so Abraham, as he is concocting his clever plan, is oblivious to the greatness and the majesty and the sovereignty of God. You know, I wonder if we sometimes allow ourselves to sinfully think you know, about a particular challenge. You know, I can, I can handle it by myself. I don't need God for this. Uh, perhaps we might even couch it in a language that betrays the sinfulness of our heart. Uh, God is so great, I don't really want to disturb him for this little thing. I don't know, perhaps thinking specifically for, for your life and in your life, in the season of life that many of you are, are in currently, you know, maybe if I could do something to make sure that I have the kind of life partner that God has for me. You know, perhaps he's not that godly or she's not that godly, but once they get in touch with me, they will become godly. Trying to manipulate things, trying to do things on our own strength, clearly disobeying God's clear and objective commands from his word. Abraham is perhaps not even thinking about what is going on behind the sins, uh, scenes. But with Abraham and with us, we need to remind ourselves that God is deeply and intimately involved in everything that he does. Uh, there is nothing that escapes his sight. So what does the Lord do? Verse 17, he strikes Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. And the literal translation there is, the Lord afflicted with a disease, Pharaoh with a great plague, him and his household. Emphasizing the fact about the greatness of what came upon them as, as a country, as a nation. Pharaoh's household, in other words, was overwhelmed with this disease. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary, writes about this particular verse. He says, God's intervention marks the turning point. The nature of the punishment of the Egyptians is not precisely defined. Negei, which is the Hebrew word there, often refers to skin diseases. Example, Leviticus 13 and 14, and then 2 Kings 15, 5. And these were generally regarded as the consequence of serious sin, as shown by the rule that a healed leper had to offer a guilt offering, Leviticus 14, 12. This sacrifice is also offered or required after adultery with a slave girl, Leviticus 19. Now that could suggest that the Egyptians suffered from some sort of a skin disease, a plague of the boils, he says, end quote. Moses further records actually for us that it was because of Sarai that the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household, verse 17 at the end. The last phrase there can also be translated because of the matter of Sarai, wife of Abram. You see, Sarah was Abram's wife and the Pharaoh of Egypt was about to take her as his own wife and this would have foiled the plan of God. What was the plan? Remember, God had promised him that he will make him a great nation, that he will bless him, that he will make his name great, and that he will be a blessing, that he will bless those who bless him, and he will curse those who curse him. 
and that in him all the families of the nations would be ultimately blessed. All of those plans would have met their end had Sarai been violated by Pharaoh. And so that cannot be. And so God intervenes. Now there's not a record in here of how Pharaoh found out that it was Abram who was responsible for this. It may be that everyone in Pharaoh's household, Pharaoh's household may have been infected with this particular disease except Sarai. Nothing has happened to her, and she was spared. She remained untouched. It may be that that may have convinced Pharaoh that it was Abraham who was in some way responsible for this. And so in verse 18, he summons him. Notice verse 18, Then Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? As soon as Pharaoh finds out that it is Abraham who is responsible for this, he summons him, he calls him, and he says to him, what is this that you have done to me? Now, this question from Pharaoh to Abraham should remind you of a similar incidence where the same question is asked. In this case, it was God who asks the question, and he asks the question to Eve. Genesis chapter 3, verse 13, then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? You know, in both instances, there is something that was done that was in violation of God's command. In Genesis 3, Eve disobeys God's clear command not to eat, while here Abram fails to trust God for his provision and, and lies to get his way. Not only does Abram fail to trust God and lie, his actions and his dishonesty could have ended up in the king of Egypt committing adultery, something that was even in those times considered a great sin. And so Pharaoh confronts Abram about his deception. Why did you not tell me that this is your wife? Why did you tell me that she was your sister? And because you told me that she was your sister, I took her to put her through the process of becoming my wife. In other words, Abram, you lied. In this case, Pharaoh showed more character and integrity than Abram. Did he not? Pharaoh's actions were more in line with Yahweh's character than Abram's actions were. Isn't it appalling sometimes to see unbelievers behave more like God than believers? What a tragedy. What a tragedy. You know, our behavior, your behavior, my behavior, should be so excellent that we should stand out from the other believers, unbelievers. Unbelievers should know what we are against and what we are for. They should know that we are the same people in private as we are in public. They need to know that any time a word comes out of our mouth, that it is going to be honoring to the God that we say we believe in. They need to know that our contentment in life does not come from the stuff that we possess, but it comes from the relationship we have with the God of this universe. And they need to know that God and things of God are the number one priority in my life and in, my, in your life. Uh, they need to know that we are committed to do what the Bible commands us to do and to bring ourselves under the authority of the Bible. Now, when that does not happen, we can know from this short account of 11 verses that God can sometimes raise unbelievers to remind believers of what is expected from them. So how does Pharaoh respond? Here's what Pharaoh says. Only four Hebrew words Moses records for us. Verse 19 at the end, here, wife, take, go. Here, wife, take, go. There's an abruptness 
with those words as they come out of his mouth, not only in English, but also in Hebrew. The abruptness is there to show the readers how much Abraham's actions angered Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh asks him to take his wife and leave. He then commands his men, verse 20, perhaps the same people who brought Sarai to his attention, to escort Abraham, his wife, and all that belonged to him. And Abraham, along with his wife and family then, were expelled, they were sent away. The same word for sent away is, that is, that is the word that is used with Adam and Eve when they were sent away. They were expelled from the garden as Abraham and Sarai were sent back to where they came from. That then is the story. As we draw lessons from this story, I hope the picture of a promise-keeping God emerges as we consider some lessons that we can draw from, from this. First of all, we notice the truthfulness of God's word, the truthfulness of God's word. If you were to read any religious books other than the Bible, uh, the main characters are always presented as impeccable. They do no wrong. But the Bible, on the other hand, does not put its heroes on a pedestal. They are presented as ordinary human beings who were chosen by God for extraordinary tasks. And the place Abraham occupies in the annals of Jewish history is quite legendary. His place in biblical history is, is remarkable. He's the first man to be given such a large space in the book of Genesis. He's called a friend of God and a man of faith. But in spite of all of this, his sins are openly recorded. You see, this record attests to the fact that the Bible is true and authentic. It is real. It is objective and objectively true, the truthfulness of God's word. Secondly, the comfort for God's people, the comfort for God's people. You see, Moses is recording this for us. He has received a record from others who have written it down, and then he's putting all of this together. He's putting this down, perhaps sitting down um, uh, under the shade of a tree, writing on leather parchments that he has. And as he's recording this, He's reminded of the fact that even Jacob came to Egypt because there was a famine. And God was saying to him, I've seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt to Moses. He's saying to Moses, Moses, I've seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt. Uh, I have given heed to their cry and I'm aware of their sufferings. And so I've come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Now having delivered the patriarch Abraham, Having delivered Jacob and his family, what do you think the Hebrew people are thinking at this moment? Is this God capable of delivering us? Oh, absolutely. Reading this account of Abraham the patriarch must have brought comfort to God's people as they thought of how supernaturally Abraham, their father, was delivered from the hands of the Egyptians. And so secondly, the comfort for God's people. As you sit down here, this should also bring comfort to us. There's no other explanation for how Abraham was delivered from the hand of Pharaoh and how Sarai was preserved and through her the seed that was to ultimately come. Thirdly, this is also an example of God's deliverance. What a wonderful example of God's deliverance. Now, the promises made to Abraham were specific 
specifically the ones that were made to him in chapter 4 were specific to Abraham and cannot be applied to us in a general sense. Whenever we are delivered, it was because God intended for us to be delivered. We will ultimately be delivered, yes, but the promise to deliver in the immediate is not made to you and to me. Sometimes we will go through difficult times and the end might not seem near. But what is promised to us? What is promised to us is that he will be there with us. What is promised to you and to me is his presence, that he is with us. Isn't the great psalmist David who writes, Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God doesn't promise us deliverance from every trials that we face, but he does promise us his presence. You know, earlier we were singing uh, the Christmas songs. What do we celebrate in Christmas? God with us. God with us. Doesn't Matthew recount the prophecy from the Old Testament? Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? Emmanuel. God with us. In sending the Lord Jesus Christ, God is telling us that he is with us. That he has become like one of us except without sin. Not only that, at the end of the book of Matthew, as our Lord is giving this great commission, he would say to those who were gathered there and applicable to all of us as well, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And God, to you and me, does not promise deliverance, but he does promise his presence. For great comfort, then, we can take from, from this passage. Not only that, as we think of a promise-keeping God, this passage is also an exhibition of God's character. An exhibition of God's character. Here we find a God who provides. Paul, writing to the Philippians in Philippians 4.19, would say, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I can say to you on the basis of the authority of God's word that everything that you need, God has provided for you and will provide for you. Not only does God provide, he also sustains. In Psalm 68, verse 19, it says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Colossians 1, 15, 17, Paul writes, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Lord is with us during our difficult times. The Lord provides for us. The Lord sustains us. And the Lord also providentially cares for our needs. In fact, in through the circumstances of our life, you know, it's a verse that comes easily to our minds as we think of Paul's letter to the Romans where he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. 
behind what you can see is a God who is working tirelessly for your good and for his glory. Let me conclude by quoting another passage. You don't have to turn there, but it's Matthew 6, verse 26 to 30. As Jesus, in his famous sermon on the mount, says this, Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? What a great God we have. In how he preserved Abraham, Sarai, and his household, he is telling us that he is a promise-keeping God. These are the promises, believer, that he has made to you and to me. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're think, saying to yourself, I don't think those promises are applicable to me. I don't think I'm a part of the family of God. I don't think he is my heavenly father. Before you leave tonight, can I encourage you to think and reflect on what he has done for you in Christ Jesus? Even as the culture celebrates this whole season as Christmas, essentially Christmas is this. God became man to take your sin and my sin upon himself, that he would live the kind of life that you and I ought to have lived, the perfect life. He alone is the only one who has lived the perfect life. And then his death, the blood that was shed by him was unblemished, was spotless, and that sacrifice was acceptable to God. And now he receives you on the basis of that sacrifice. And so when you come to God and you say to him, God, please forgive me of my sins, he forgives you on the basis of the blood that was shed for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. We've seen in this story a God who who is a promise-keeping God. He's a faithful God. We have seen the truthfulness of God's word. We have seen the comfort that it provides to God's people. We have seen an example of God's deliverance, and we have seen an exhibition of God's character. What a great God we serve. As you reflect on these passages and get into your groups for small discussion, I hope this is an encouragement to all of us as we go through tough times, perhaps some even going through right now to find comfort in this faithful and promise-keeping God. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful reminder from your word that you made a promise to Abraham and to Sarah, and it was a unilateral covenant, a unilateral pro promise, and you did what you needed to do to make sure that your promise is being fulfilled. And we know that it, it was fulfilled because eventually, through this particular line, our Savior would be born. The seed of the woman, the virgin birth. And in Christ coming into this world, we know that you are a promise-keeping God. You kept your promise that you made. A great uh, reminder also this text is to us that you are a God who 
is with us during our times of trial and difficulties. Perhaps there's some who are going through it even right now. Or would you comfort them? Would you draw them closer to yourself? Would you remind them of your character? Or would you remind them of the fact that everything that is recorded for us in the Old and the New Testament is an example to us? And that we can lean on you, that we can trust in you. And I pray for other small groups time. Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged by our time together. Lord, perhaps there's someone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior. That perhaps you would draw them through the teaching and preaching of your word to yourself even tonight. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.